when's the last time you Googled your name? Not to sound vain, but I won't tell you why, but this morning I Googled my name. I just punched in Robert Green Fondren Church. And see, I was going to see if there's any haters out there. And the seventh rendering of Robert Green Fondren Church said Robert Green Flawed Hero. So that's not it, okay? Half of that's true, by the way. Like the internet, half the things you find on the internet are true. But it's David, the flawed hero that we're looking at in this series. And we'll get there in a moment to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24. But I want to begin with a big idea. I want to begin with this idea. We're gonna, you're going to hear it in the middle and you'll hear it at the end. I don't want you to miss it today. In fact, I'd love for you to write it down. If you don't even have a pen or paper, I want you to pretend like you're writing it down to make me feel better about this morning. But here's the big idea. The easy way is not often God's way. The easy way is not often God's way. And if you're actually writing that down below that, I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I taking things in my own hands or am I trusting God enough to wait? Am I taking things in my own hands or am I trusting God enough to wait? The easy way is not often God's way. We are looking at the flawed hero, the man named David. And we're looking at different components of his life, different aspects of his character. And the background historically is this is a really, in history, it's a very fast moving period. And the nation of Israel is moving from a theocracy of judges to a monarchy of kings. And they had one king appointed by the prophet Samuel. And Samuel did, he did his best in God's eyes to find the right king. I mean, a king has sovereign, supreme power. If you're going to have a king, you want to have a good king. And King Saul was appointed and he fit the bill. On the outside, he looked like he would be the man. He was tall, he was charismatic, he was good looking, he was a great warrior. He seemed, as they say, to have it all. But the good king turned bad. Saul ultimately was a man who served himself. He abused power, used people, he bent the rules to serve his own purposes. At, at the beginning, it looked good. And scripture tells us that God rejected King Saul. And he instructs Samuel to look for another king. And Samuel is sent, as some of you know, to Bethlehem to look for the king um, among the sons of a man named Jesse. Jesse's the Bethlehemite. Those of you who know the Bible and know the story of Ruth, you'll, you'll know that Jesse is the grandson of Ruth the Moabite. Just a little interesting tidbit for you there. And there, Samuel is instructed among Jesse's seven sons to find the next king. And you know the story. We've talked about it. You've been here or maybe you've listened to the podcast where the sons are called out one by one. Is this the guy? Is this the, is this the guy? It's not him. It's not him. It's not him. Do you have any more sons, Jesse? Yeah, there's one out in the sheep pasture. The youngest son, the least likely, the shepherd boy. And he's the one chosen. And what a great idea for us to learn, to lean into today, that when God's looking for a leader, he doesn't look the way we look. He doesn't value what we often typically value. And we see that in David. In fact, the Bible calls him, the, the language it uses in 1 Samuel 17 is that he was ruddy and handsome and had beautiful appearance. He smelled like sheep. He was well tanned. He was probably a, a kind of a runt of a guy, like a smaller guy. Um, picture maybe um, Justin Bieber or a Jonas brother or our own Nick Crawford. Not the one necessarily that you would choose. 
And this is the one who's chosen. And in these weeks, we've been looking at different parts of David, different parts of the story. We've looked at David as the shepherd boy, David as the warrior. And last week, we looked at David as the friend. We're a little slow on our screen this morning, but it's coming, I know. But those, that's what we've looked at, the shepherd boy. When we looked at 1 Samuel 16, 7, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And David is so glad. He was chosen, even though he was the least likely. And as the shepherd, he realized that that. The Lord is the shepherd. He acknowledges the Lord is the shepherd and that he himself was the sheep. And because we've said each week, because he knew he was a sheep, he ended up making a great king, Israel's greatest king ever. And I challenge you in week one, looking at David, this flawed hero, for you to embrace like David did, to embrace your time in the pasture. Because God calls us for pasture periods in our lives. Uh, oftentimes there's monotony and there's obscurity. Obscurity, nobody notices. Monotony, a lot of the same things over and over. What'd you do today, mother? I changed diapers. What did you do today, accountant? I balanced the ledgers. What did you do today, salesperson? Just some monotony, just some things that don't seem to be worthy of mentioning. But God works in those moments. God works in the obscurity and in the monotony because in the midst of the obscurity and the monotony, there's the reality and the reality is God is forming you. The very times in life where you think God is not watching, that he doesn't have something for you, those could, be, those could be the very moments that he's forming something in you. And we see that in David. It goes on to say, in fact, I love it. I presented it to you in week one about just a leadership principle that says in Psalm 78, 72, that David led them with the skill of his hand and the integrity of his heart. He had skill and he has character. What a combination. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what you want in your life? Isn't that what we want in our leaders? We want people that have a skill, that are gifted, that discover that gift and deploy it to be used for God's kingdom, for the good of the world. And that along with that, this is where it gets so dangerous and shady at times, but along with that, God desires for our character to be formed. That's why he looks at the heart. I've said this a couple of times now, but that's really good news that God looks at the, end, at the heart. Isn't that good news? That's good news for you, some of you who put, on, put yourselves under a lot of pressure to impress people, to worry about how you look. You know, God, when he chooses a leader, he never says, hey, nice haircut, great body, impressive resume, sterling credentials. He's looking at your heart. And so it's good news. That's good news because we can be free of so much that we chase after. But it's also, it could be bad news because do we have the heart that God is looking for? What's being formed in you? Is it a willingness to forgive others and to ask for forgiveness? Is it compassion? Are you embracing the waiting and learning? And then we see this warrior David. It's one of the greatest stories, not just in the Bible, but one of the greatest stories in history, David and Goliath. The Philistines on one side of the hill, the Israelites on the other. There's a valley in between. Instead of large, massive scale bloodshed, there was representative warfare where Goliath, the robocop looking giant, comes out and David was the only one from the men of Israel who stepped up to the plate. And we noticed that David, to get the courage to step up to Goliath, that he looked back at God's faithfulness in his life. He has allowed me to escape from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. David tells us that he killed the bear. He grabbed his beard. We need to talk to David in heaven and tell him that bears don't have beards. But anyway, maybe he's got something to teach us. But David looks back at past victories to give them courage to move into the future, and he does, and it's a great, great story. And then we looked last week at David as a friend. We talked about Jonathan, of course, and also mentioned to you that it's important that we're created for friendship. Friendship makes us, and we're made for friendship. 
Who's in your life? What kind of friends do you have? David had a few. He had Samuel, an older, wiser mentor who saw something in him and who called it out. You need that. You need that. When you turn 25, you realize that the person who was hardest on you, who wanted the best for you, is also the person who loved you the most. But you got to be 25. You guys aren't 25. You need that kind of friend. You need somebody that will confront you. You need somebody that will wound you. You'll need, you need somebody in love like that. And then you need a Jonathan. In fact, it raises eyebrows. The Bible speaks to this friendship that it's so close. It's so intimate. There's so much affection. But Jonathan and David had a very special friendship formed soul to soul. And we said it. We say it each week that we want to find ourselves in the story. And you have a friend in Jesus. What a friend in Jesus. We have a friend in Jesus, all our griefs, all that he can bear, all our pain, he can bear that. He's a friend. Jesus with his disciples, the 12, those closest to him, knowing that one would betray him. He said, I now no longer call you what? Servants, but I call you friends. In other words, I don't want you just to be a religious person following the rules out of duty and obligation. I want you to know my heart. And that's what a friend is, right? In the Hebrew, the word friend is the same word for secret. And Jesus says, hey, I want us to know each other's heartbeats. It's important. You were made for friendship, and friendship makes you. And today I want to look at Dave, David, the caveman. We'll just call today's sermon Dave in a Cave. And we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And before we go to the cave, I do want to say to you that David knew hills and he knew valleys, right? David knew the hill of being appointed, selected, and chosen as a king. He knew the the reality of going back to the pasture. He had been appointed king, but he has to go back to the pasture for years. Being appointed king is a hill. Going back to the pasture, that's a valley. He, he fights and wins over a giant named Goliath. He becomes a national hero. He gets the king's daughter in marriage. That's a hill. Saul, jealous, paranoid, egomaniac king is after his life. Threw a spear at him a couple times, sends his men to kill him by assassination. That's a valley. And here David is in a cave, Psalm 57. I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 24. We're going to go to Psalm 57 in a moment. 1 Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel, went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. 
See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Saul had sought to kill David. David sees Saul in a place of vulnerability. When you're relieving yourself, we're just going to preach the Bible here, but when you're relieving yourself, you're not ready to defend yourself, right? That's a very vulnerable point. He's relieving himself in a dark cave. There's probably not a toilet, but I'm sure the first king who used a toilet, we could call it a royal flush, right? But Saul is just in a deep, dark cave, and he's relieving himself, and he's vulnerable, but David spares his life. And it's interesting that upon exiting the cave, David feels guilty. Why would David feel guilty for not killing Saul? I mean, here's an opportunity, and it seems to be what the Lord had promised. It seemed to be what God was doing, and even his men were like, oh, here's the, here's the. You can get bad advice, though, can't you? You can get bad advice from good people. And David restrains himself because sometimes the easy way is not God's way. And David said, this is in his timing. It's not on his terms. This isn't the right thing to do in those days, in biblical days, old and new. In fact, Matthew 19 gives a story. Some of you may know of a woman touching the hem of Jesus's garment. She was a woman who was hemorrhaging, a woman who uh, was very ill at health, who had acute disease, a chronic illness. And she reaches and touches the hem of Jesus's garment. And in those days, that was a sign. It symbolized loyalty and faithfulness and need and trust. But David here doesn't touch the garment. What does he do? He cuts the hem of the garment. He cuts part, the corner of the robe, which is, means the opposite of the touching. It's, it's meant to be a, a, a symbol of rebellion or defiance or disloyalty. And David is a sensitive guy. David's a strong warrior, but he's a sensitive guy. Ladies, isn't that what you're looking for? And David, is, he's, he's got this sensitivity and he's broken by this. But David, oh, his men, David, you had this chance and it was the easy way. Dude's going to the bathroom and you could have taken him out. And David wanted to do things God's way. He could have taken things into his own hands, but he knew it wasn't the right way. For you, this big idea, the easy way is not often God's way. And the question Below that, am I taking things into my own hands? Or am I willing to trust God enough to wait? And none of us like to wait. I got to pray with a young lady after the 930 service, and that was her confession. Man, I just, I've never been good at waiting. How many of you are naturally impatient? You ever yelled at a screen? Don't, don't raise your hands. You're not, you're not going to look good here. You ever yelled at a screen, thrown a device, in a moment of frustration, vowed to never buy a particular product, right? You're impatient. We have a group for you, okay? Counselors are standing by. I was reading recently, I don't know if this is true or not, but I know you're going to try it. But I've learned there's some stoplights that if you hit your headlights, there's a sensitivity there that the light will change from red to green. And you can go faster if you flash your headlights at a stoplight. There's some, I think this, this could be true in certain situations. Have anybody ever done that, tried that, heard about that? Some of you? Okay, thank you. Did it work? It worked. Okay, we've got some testimonies, some glowing testimonies. 
We're impatient people. How about the internet? Remember, let's get, we're going to get nostalgic for 30 seconds. How about dial-up internet? Anybody remember dial-up internet? It's so good. The, the greatest feature of dial-up internet was it was audible, okay? And you could hear it. You could hear it when you were about to get connection. It sounded like this. Internet. Remember? And that's when you knew you were, you were getting on the internet unless a roommate picked up the phone, right, to talk to somebody. You're like, who picked up the phone? I was getting on the internet. Remember those days? And we just don't want to wait. We're impatient people. And people who don't want to wait take things into their own hands. And as an aside, for the sake of balance and proper teaching, I want to say that there are times in life when you need, to, you need to put your hands on the plow, when you need to step up and you need to take the initiative. Women, you're going to love me for this, but men, it's one of our worst traits. Robert Lewis in a book long ago, I think it rings true today, says that to be a man, you've got to do a few things. You've got to reject passivity, you've got to accept responsibility, and you've got to stand courageously. And there's times, men, you in particular, we need to step up, you need to grab things, you need to do it, you need to take the initiative. But oftentimes, when things are hard, when there seems to be no solution, when it seems that the only thing to do is wait and trust, then you and I need patience and restraint. But it is so hard to wait, isn't it? I mean, it's just so hard. There's two ways that we sort of take, wrongly take life into our own hands. One is seek, we seek revenge. We seek revenge. This, this is a story of Old Testament. It's, it's there in the midst of some bloodshed and some violence. And it's easy for us to think, well, man, there aren't dead bodies around the house. There's, there aren't people lying on the floor at work. So it's okay, right? I'm not exacting revenge like that, but a bitter, bitter spirit can exact revenge. A gossiping tongue can exact revenge. I've seen it, have you? I have to guard against it, do you? It's easy to seek revenge. Your roommate does something shady, you go shadier. Your spouse wrongs you, you seek to wrong them. Your boss fires you or he's just a jerk and you seek to run down his reputation. I wanna ask you, because in a room full of hundreds of people, I just wonder if there aren't some here who maybe have been recently fired or you've needed to make a transition. You know, there are people who leave and there are people who leave and talk smack. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to leave and talk smack. And if you've been fired or you're changing churches or you're walking away from a situation, walk away. Say goodbye to the old be gracious and embrace the new. But don't be in the leave and talk crowd. Because that's a way that you can exact revenge. I've seen it and I'm tempted to do it at times. I've been in situations where I know I could say something about somebody that's true and hurt them and help bring them down. But there's a way to take the high road. Remember the presidential election when they go, when they go low, we go high. And then by the end of the election, everybody was just going low and lower and lower to new sub subterranean levels. Right? I mean, I'm not taking sides. I'm just saying, right? 
There's a different way. I, I picked up a book at Lemuria this week, the Mississippi Book of Quotations. Mississippians are smart and funny. And there's just a fun book of quotations. I've been reading it, just a lot of our famous writers. And here's one. I was looking for John Maxwell to see if John Maxwell's in this. But here's one by Jack Butler. He wasn't a Christian, or maybe he was, but if he was, he wasn't the kind of Christian that people who call themselves Christians would call a Christian. Do you know that Christians never started calling themselves Christians, the first Christians? It wasn't self-imposed. They were known as the people of the way. The people of the way because they followed the way of Jesus. And then outsiders called them little, they called them Christians, which means little Christ. But even that idea, that idea was that it would be men and women who were authentic followers of Jesus. And they lived their lives to, not to just believe a certain set of beliefs. It wasn't orthodoxy, it was orthopraxy. It's what you, not just what you believe, but what you live based on what you believe. And you and I, you know what I know today, that the word Christian has so much baggage to it that very few are embracing it anymore. I've noticed that there's a trend among pastors and authors and all, not to even say Christian, but to say Jesus follower. Because who's a Christian? Romans chapter 12. To the early people of the way. In the church of Rome, when a lot was happening, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. I'm not going to quit preaching like I did last week when I heard amen. But hey, amen to that, right? There's a better way, y'all. There's a higher way. And I'm telling you, here's what I, here's what, I'm no better than you. And I'm no different than you. And I'm tempted at times to talk in a way that could hurt somebody or gossip. Or, or take up for myself. And if I know I have a critic or someone that's out there talking, it's easy for me to step up. You know, I'm just like you. And there's something in our hearts and it's so dark and we're bent this way. But do not go there. There is a Jesus way and it's a better way. It's a better way. Back up to the first part of Romans 12. And it says this, it's kind of creepy. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone. The eyes of, who's watching? Who's watching and who cares? Yesterday, Susan and I, she usually checks the mail. And we had a notification arrive in the mail from Enterprise Rental Car. And it notified us. We, we rented a car. We were in Chicago for Christmas. And Enterprise, they started the letter real nice. Thank you for choosing Enterprise for your car rental needs. We appreciate your business and continue to look for ways to deliver the kind of service and products that bring customers like you back again. At times, we also have to follow up with customers to help minimize confusion and facilitate timely payments and even when additional charges are credited. Here's the additional charge we learned yesterday by mail. On December 28th, 2016 at 5.36 p.m., our rental van ran a red light in downtown Chicago. Isn't that something? 
And so this morning, Susan and I had a discussion about who was driving the rental van (laughs) on December 28th at 5.36 p.m. in downtown Chicago. Now, you... Married couples, that conversation, it would have been a lot tougher at your house. Y'all, it would have gotten ugly, and you'd be fighting and pointing fingers and fault-finding and blame-shifting and yelling and stuff. But I'm a pastor. She's a pastor's wife. We just had a discussion. We just wanted to get to the truth. Who? Who was driving the van? And after our discussion, we learned, apparently, as crazy as it sounds, someone broke into our hotel room, stole the keys, <laughs> took the rental van, went out on the town, got a, you know, ran a red light, came back, dropped the keys bedside, and we never knew about it. Remarkable. It begs the question, whose eyes are watching you? Apparently, Chicago is watching me. How many of you think this is going to fall back on me? We're going to find out. We're going to find out. I'll let you know next week, I think. Whose eyes are watching? Who sees? Who cares? God is always watching. Scary, creepy, provokes fear, doesn't it? And on another, it brings such comfort. God is watching and others are watching. And when you're tempted to take the easy way, which is often not God's way, when you're tempted to not trust him and wait on him and to take matters in your own hands, no. Know that a lot is at stake. Know that God sees the heart and know that others are going to see as well. And take the high road. Don't seek revenge. Two ways I told you that we take life into our own hands. One, we seek revenge and others, we cut corners. We seek revenge and we cut corners. And when you cut corners, it's the, it's the person who's depressed who goes right to a refuge in alcohol. It's the one who's lacking intimacy and they run to pornography. It's the single people. God bless the single people of our church. We wouldn't be a church without our single people. But I meet single people in in our church and in our community. And you know you're not with the right person. You know that long term this person is not fundamentally compatible with you. But you don't want to be lonely. You don't want to spend your life alone. You don't want to even come to church and sit by yourself. And you're choosing something in the short term over something in the long term. You're taking matters in your own hands. And you're cutting corners. And just as we're tempted to seek revenge... We're tempted to cut corners. And here's what I want to tell you. I know that I'm speaking about a God who is not visible or tangible or audible. I know that I'm speaking about a God when I say his eyes are on you, that every one of us has to sit here today and say, is it true? Can I believe that? Do I see that in my life? And it's hard to wait. But I want to put before you the value of waiting. David in the cave waited on God's timing. He could have taken the easy way. He could have exacted revenge and cut corners and therefore compromised and sinned. But he waited. He waited. Look what what, uh, Psalm 13 says. To the one who's waiting, there's this question. The question is repeated four times in two verses. Like a cranky, impatient kid in the backseat on family vacation. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How long? How long? How long? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long, how long will my enemy triumph over me? You have a friend in the psalmist 
It's the greatest psychological reality, the gamut of emotions I believe ever recorded. The book of Psalms. When you're waiting, how long, how long, how long? But God gives a promise, Isaiah 30 in verse 18. It says this, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Guys, he does. He does. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all, say this, who wait for him. Let's say that as a church. Blessed are all who, say it louder. Blessed are all who, if I did it again, would it irritate you? Blessed are all who, Jenny Woodruff was shaking her head. Blessed are all who wait for him. What does the word blessed mean? Say it in a word. Blessed means happy. Blessed, to be blessed means happy. Are you telling me, are you, do you have the gall and the gumption to stand up today in front of a whole bunch of people, some who are in hard places, who are hurting, who are tired of waiting on God, and you're standing up there to say that it's, you're happier if you wait? Yes. Yes. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. Can I tell you that waiting on God doesn't mean that you do nothing. Waiting in our culture, it it seems to indicate, hey, you're just sitting there. Brad Paisley has a country song a few years ago. I'm waiting on a woman, just waiting on a woman. It's not good. I'm spending my life waiting on a woman, right? It's a happy ending to the song. But you just think a typical male, yeah, just waiting on a woman. Doing nothing. But waiting on God is different than that. Uh, Let me illustrate this way. Let's say that you're fortunate enough to be dining at a five-star restaurant. You're having a four-course meal, appetizer, soup, salad, entree, dessert, at a five-star restaurant. And if you've been to a five-star restaurant, you'll know that you have a waiter. And that waiter, you know what their job is that evening? To wait on you. You, they're just waiting on you. If you need Splenda for your tea, if you need butter for your roll, if you need more pepper in your salad, they are there for your every need. I say need, but it's your wish, your whim, your want. They're there to to meet your desires. You're at a five-star restaurant. Picture yourself at Waffle House. Now, God loves Waffle House. We know that. There needs to be cleaner air in Waffle House, but God loves Waffle House. But let's say you're at Waffle House. The same waiter, waitress, that took your order is going to cook your food, mop the floor and answer the phone and wait on a whole bunch of other tables, right? I mean, at least that's what my Waffle House experiences have been. And you don't get a lot of attention there. And there's the waiter or waitress that's really scattered. But waiting on God is more like being the waiter at a five-star restaurant. God, I'm all yours. God, you have my attention. It's not waiting a bunch of of busyness and diversions and other things and other people. It's God, all you. God, I'm waiting. What do you desire for me? What can I offer you? What can I sacrifice? Waiting on God. So hard, but so rewarding and so blessed. But I ask you, I ask you if you've taken things into your own hands, if you've refused to wait on God's goodness and his timing, if you've done more than cut off the edge of a robe, you've done something bigger than that. 
and you've done things your way. You've sought revenge or cut corners. Let me ask you, are you happy because you did it? There's regret on every pew. Regret when we try to do things in our own way, in our own timing. Blessed are those who wait on the Lord. Patience is better. It's better than pride. And so in the home stretch, with just a couple of minutes left, I want to, in a super quick way, point you to Psalm 57. We're going to put a few passages up, but I want to tell you, I want to give you four traits that can help you strengthen yourself to wait on the Lord. There's value in it, but it's hard to believe that it's better. It's hard to believe that it leads to greater happiness. But here are four things. Here are the four words. I'm going to give you the four words first. First word is sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Secondly is his steadfast love. Thirdly is selflessness on your part, selflessness on your part. And lastly, satisfaction in God, satisfaction between you and God. God's sovereignty, his steadfast love, your selflessness and satisfaction in him. Psalm 57, why Psalm 57? Does anybody know? Psalm 57 is the psalm written in the cave. Psalm 57 is when David's enemies are Saul's men. And here's what he says. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. To who does he cry out to? He cries out to someone who is sovereign, who can do something about anything, who has all power to do as he wills. I cry out to God, the sovereign one, my most, my most high God. The next verse, Psalm 57, three, we see the steadfastness of God's love. He will send help from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Next, next verse, I think it's verse five. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory, here's the selflessness of this man, David, of this king. Let your glory be over all the earth. Contrast the two kings, Saul, whose glory was he about? His own. And David says, it's not about me. It's not about me. If you think it's all about you, you're gonna take things into your own hands. You're going to cut corners and seek revenge and try to do everything now. You're not going to be able to be a patient person if you think it's about you. But if the kingdom is not your kingdom and you realize it's someone else's kingdom. Listen, when I realize Fondren Church is not my church, ask her. I can rest. When it's not about me in any vain glory, there's just greater peace. And we see the selflessness here. And lastly, verse seven, my heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Now in the earlier verse, David said, God's love is steadfast and faithful. In this verse, he says, my commitment to you, my own heart is steadfast. Do you see the chronology and order there? We can only be, your commitment to God can only be steadfast if and when you realize his love for you is faithful and steadfast. He says, I will whine and complain. He says, I will sing and I will make melody. He realizes it's not about him, it's about God. And God is doing something on a whole different timetable. His sovereignty. And he finds satisfaction in that. Years and years ago, I had an opportunity in Southern California to entertain some missionaries who were serving, um, much like Mother Teresa, in a really tough, tough, tough part of the world a developing nation and just, I mean, a saint. One of those that, you know, I'm probably going to, in heaven, I'm probably going to have a cabin in the corner and this couple, they're going to they're gonna have a, a palace. Just great service. 
And we had the opportunity to take them to a really nice restaurant in Julian, California, a beautiful mountain community, an hour and a half inland of San Diego. And on the way there, we had to gas up. We had to make a stop at a convenience store. And I was telling them, well, boy, hold on. Wait on your appetite. We're going to get there. And they were like buying Funyuns and Slim Jims. I mean, they, you know, they had been without for so long. They were stuffing their pockets with things. And I'm telling them, oh, we're going to a feast. We're going to a feast. And when you realize, when you believe, when you feel the summons and call and wooing of a great God, your Savior, that one day you're going to a feast, you will not fill up on junk food now. And the junk food, the sugary, fatty, bad for you stuff, doesn't it taste so good in the moment? But there's a feast. There's something better waiting. And we see in this flawed hero, one who was longing for that feast, who realized God had something more for him. His sovereignty, his steadfast love led to his own selflessness and to a deeper sense of satisfaction. And satisfied people can deal with sin better in their lives. And when you're not satisfied, when you whine and complain instead of singing and making melody in your heart, you're more prone to seek revenge. You're more prone to cut corners. You're more prone to sin. You're more prone to do things your way. Are you willing today to say the easy way is not always God's way? And in David the caveman, we see the power of restraint of being willing to trust God enough to wait on God. Would you pray with me?